Hey there, welcome to Watering Seeds, a podcast conversation that reviews and reapplies the preached word to our own minds and hearts and to those of our listeners. Watering Seeds is a podcast ministry of Covenant Reformed Presbyterian Church here in Asheville, North Carolina. Uh, we discuss our Sunday morning sermons through the Gospel of Matthew. Today we're discussing our recent sermon on Matthew 12, 38 to 50, entitled, What Are You Talking About? The sermon was preached by my friend and fellow pastor here at the church, Jim Curtis. To hear that sermon, you can go to our website, covenantreform.net, click on the sermons tab, or you can go to sermonaudio.com, search Covenant Reformed Asheville. I love being on this side of the mic today. Let me bring in our preacher, speaker, extraordinaire, Jim Curtis. Welcome to Watering Seeds. It's always good to be here, sir. How's it feel to be on the flip? Uh, feels like summer. Summer? Like this past summer. Oh, yeah. You guys did this when I was I got born. a lot of experience on this side of the table. Okay. Uh, as you can not, tell, I'm not bit, saying that that means it's going to be good, but... <clears throat> uh, I'm a bit rusty for this side of the glass, so... Have you ever been on that side? Yeah, yeah. I used to be the host. Back I've listened to every episode that you guys have ever put out <laughs> in this podcast. Back when our... our listenership was in the triple digits triple digits yeah. well here in the quadruple digits it feels pretty good <laughs> okay hey i loved being not on the other side of the glass for the podcast but being in the pew uh listening to you preach uh wonderful uh message what are you talking about uh, i got a lot of uh, chuckles from your intro i thought it was a great intro thank you i uh, loved it um i was probably most nervous about of any part of the sermon about the intro so i'm glad to hear them went well so you asked me sometimes uh, what it's like to preach a familiar passage. I have a, a, a opening question, not about the text, but uh, I mean, what's it like to be inserted into a series that somebody else has structured and organized yeah, and been preaching question. for over a year? Yeah, I mean, uh, what a lot of people probably wouldn't be surprised at learning is that I come to you with a lot of questions, particularly this one, just because this sermon and the sermon you preached the week before with the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit a lot of uh, spirituality stuff going on. I was just talking to somebody actually who is an avid listener of Watering Seeds, and he said uh, <clears throat> that he was excited for us to record Watering Seeds this afternoon, and the reason was because he was excited for us to talk about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And I told him, oh, uh, sorry, you're getting my sermon, not the one before. <laughs> but yeah, so how does it work in, in the grand scheme? Uh, it doesn't throw things off unless I have been put into series before that are more topical. Yeah, Those are a lot more difficult to get into the head of the guy who, who structured and organized it. But when we're doing it... Um, expositionally like we do at Covenant Reformed, it, it's not too hard. Yeah. You know, because it's just, okay, the next passage, as it's contextually related to the one before it and will be to the one, you know, succeeding it and so on. Um, the The real trouble with this one was the the Thanksgiving holiday, actually. Uh, so I was I was doing the majority of this work the, the primary week before. Oh, yeah, right. So I was asking you questions about the sermon you hadn't preached yet. That's true. Uh, so maybe That's I should true. ask you about that. <laughs> Um, but I think it, I think it, it, it connected well. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I haven't gotten any feedback of like, where did that sermon come from? So let's talk about the Thanksgiving holiday, uh, transition illustration you used about leftovers, which was great. 
Okay. Eating, you know, Friday, Saturday. Not the family eating. drama Thanksgiving. Not the I got a lot of mileage out of Thanksgiving. Yeah, this it was hilarious because somebody told me that morning what a great Thanksgiving they had, no drama. And then we sit there and you're talking about all the people having drama in their Thanksgivings. But you made uh, a, a joke, an illustration that you could look at these verses, uh, the final, what, 12, 13 verses of Matthew chapter 12 as leftovers. Uh, on initial read, I mean, when I initially read it, when I'm outlining the book, yeah, it's like those stories, maybe they don't actually go together. What what did you think when you initially looked at it? And then as you studied it more, what's some of the thread that brought that together in your mind? Yeah, the so, you know, the initial look, you look at it and it's it's the the thing that jumps out is obviously the, the there's three little sections. It's that middle section about the the spirit that leaves doesn't find anything, comes back and brings seven of his buddies. And I actually remember here at Covenant Reformed earlier this year, someone asked me my view of that passage. And huh. I, I sort of waffled. I don't, I don't really remember. I, all I remember is my answer wasn't really very good. So if you're out there and you're listening, r- remind me of who you were that I butchered that answer for. And let me know what you think about the okay, sermon. But, I like it. Um, but so, I'm, you know, just my initial read through, uh, that jumps out at me and I'm like, oh, no. Like I ended up with this one, okay, and and uh, you know it's it, it. I always sort of feel really great and really bad when I come across a passage like that, that's sort of infamous for a number of reasons. Uh, really good because now I get to do a deep dive, and and on the other side of this, I'll have a good answer for hey, what does pastor? What does this passage mean? But always really bad because a lot of a lot of times people can come to a service with a sermon on that text with a lot of baggage already that, um, you know, they've heard other people preach on it or, or whatever, just because it's well known. And I, I'm always sort of nervous. Like there's a couple different interpretations and yada, yada. So that makes me nervous. Well, when I started doing the deep dive into it, I realized there, there actually isn't a whole lot of differing interpretations of this. The, the primary question isn't, you know, Hey, what does that little section mean? It actually ended up being, how does it relate? And that's actually where I came up with the the, the idea of Thanksgiving leftovers was, is this related or is Jesus sort of giving some weird excursus, you know, hey, let me hit the pause button on what I've been talking about with Jonah. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you a little bit about demons real quick. And let's hit the resume button with the mom and the brothers. Um, it turns out that's not really what it is. It, um, and... Uh, I actually feel really bad about that part of my sermon that I didn't really explain that part. It was really brief, but right. Um, but, but you, that's kind of what I found it was right. And in, you subsumed it under the main idea, right? The main point of the sermon, maybe in a minute we could, uh, you could unpack sure. that yeah, a little yeah, bit yeah. more. Uh, cause talking about the re- return of the unclean spirit in my Bible, there's a break there, right? Uh, I mean, there's a, there's a little subheading, which of course isn't in the original, um, so before we actually look at that, I want to zoom out a sec to to see how you sort of framed the whole text. I mean, your main idea here that only Jesus' work of salvation is effective and sufficient to save people. Yeah. And then you had a simple outline that I'm looking at it now. I'm actually kind of worried because this is basically the outline I have for this coming Sunday. <laughs> uh, and it's sort of an outline I've had a couple other times. Yeah. Chat Matthew 11 and 12. So explain your outline. Yeah. But also in the context of this section we're in. Yeah. How does this outline fit so well at the end of chapters 11 and 12? Yeah, I'm, I'm actually glad to hear that you are seeing something similar. Because what that tells me is, as we've been sort of saying the last few weeks, and as I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, <clears throat> uh, 
the Jesus is just getting clearer and clearer and clearer. So really what he's saying is the same thing over and over and over, right? And he's just sort of saying it in a different way. He's saying it in a, in a different uh, tone. He's saying it to a different audience. You know, several different things are changing. The thing that's not changing is the message that he's giving. So uh, uh, just sort of previewing here, parable of the sower, I think you could take my outline, not that you should, but I think you could take the outline I gave and apply it directly. So you've got, you know, four soils in the parable of the sower, right? Three of those are against Jesus, and one of them is for Jesus, right? And that's just my outline. Mm-hmm. So I struggled a lot. I don't um, I don't generally struggle outlining texts for sermons. Um, uh, I struggle in, in various other ways in, in my sermon prep. But this one stumped me for a long time. Mm. I didn't know if I should talk about the sign and then the spirit and then, you know, break it up into those three sections. The ESV sort of has these headings or what I should do. And it, it really wasn't until I, I did the full study on that middle, again, just going back to the middle passage of, of verses 43 through 45 on the unclean spirit. It wasn't until I firmly believe I understood that, that I was able to come up with the outline. Cause that was the section that sort of was kept throwing my outline at the beginning. It's clear who's against Jesus at the end. It's clear who's for Jesus. Right. It's like, what is this in the middle? Right. Right. So the, 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 the key there for unlocking this for me was the end of verse 45. So also will it be with this evil generation? So th- that's sort of the, the book end, uh, the, the end with, you know, you go back up to verse 39, but Jesus answered them an evil and adulterous generation, right? So he's saying, uh, the same thing. So the verses 38 really is just narrative. And then so verse 39 through 45, Jesus is speaking about the same people, about the same thing. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly the, the family shows up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, I sort of had, okay, opposition to Jesus. And then verses 46 through 50, um, I've mentioned this before, but that sort of just fell in because... You know, uh, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. Um, I grew up without a father. I, when I started going to church uh, in in middle school to youth group and stuff, and then started going on Sunday mornings and getting more involved, and eventually, uh, actually, you know, under that ministry being converted, um, my family didn't like it. Uh, uh, the 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 word that was actually used was uh, brainwashing. Mm-hmm. Like that's the the so. So that passage has actually been very familiar to me and very sweet to me uh, because for a very long time, um, you know, I, ha- I had family members, you know, getting other family friends trying to talk me out of going into ministry, mm. right? So, so that's why I, I hope, you know, and maybe we'll talk about that, but that's why I tried to give that perspective of those verses that I know it could be difficult to read those. But for somebody like me with my background, like I love those verses. So that part of the outline was already sort of settled, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. That was was a powerful final few verses, the the way you explained it, which I'd love to come back to. Sure. uh, At the end of this. I didn't know that personal part of it. Um, Obviously, things are a little different now that I've got an incredible wife and children. Sure. My family's very supportive of my (laughs) Okay, that's good to hear. That's good to hear. Uh, So let's talk about uh, for a minute, the first point, those who are against Jesus. And you mm-hmm. looked at, I loved how you, you looked at characteristics of those in the moment who are against Jesus, but you define them in a way that we could see them across yeah. time and space. And so your characteristics of those against Jesus is they're evil, adulterous, uh, and blind. Which yeah, actually Two of leads, those obviously come from Jesus's words, and then one of them. And one blind 
is the implication right of the, yeah. and that, that that's going to happen in this sunday yeah that's they right have yeah, eyes yeah. but they can't see yeah that's they right. have ears they can't hear yeah um uh, you tied in and maybe this is a way to help answer the question that you were asked right before the podcast but you tied in the first characteristic of evil with the idea of blasphemy yeah. excuse me blaspheming the holy spirit right specifically that's is right. there Maybe explain that, but I'm also curious if you see, you, you said a moment ago, things are getting clearer in this section right, of Matthew. Right, Do right. you see what happens here as sort of a next inevitable step? Because we talked, I defined blasphemy as not a, a one-time thing, right. it's an ongoing. Right. So is this more evidence of it, that ongoing sin? Yeah, so <clears throat> if I can take my, that point and, and apply it directly to the Pharisees, but then also show it in the other generations that have been evil... Um, so first let me, let me do the other generations because that's a little more obvious. Um, there, I really had in mind, um, uh, the author of Hebrews, you know, it's me. I mean, I got to think about Hebrews, <laughs> but uh, in Hebrews, he talks about the wilderness generation, not uniting themselves by faith to the other generations of God's people. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, I, I would describe them as evil, adulterous and blind. Right. Um, and, uh, and so what we see there is not just sort of this w- instantaneous one-time thing. We see through that generation in particular, maybe the clearest um, description narratively of grumble, grumble, grumble over and over and over and over and over. And finally, it just reaches a point where God doesn't lose his patience, but it's just happened so many times that the discipline has to be heightened. So God says, none of you are getting into the the promised land. You have grumbled so many times that, you know, um, another generation of scriptures is obviously the generation after, uh, King Solomon, right? The, the pre-exilic, if, if you want the, the, the fancy term, um, where, uh, the, the kingdom split happens and in particular the Northern kingdom. And then that obviously spreads down into the Southern kingdom, but they exhibit the same traits and it's not a one-time thing. God sends prophets. He sends, uh, um, uh, righteous kings to to go and accomplish his will. It's really interesting. Uh, one of my favorite kings is King Jehu, because uh, like he comes in and destroys the house of Ahab, right? Uh, which we know Ahab's house is is, is super wicked. Um, and he comes in and he's like, "Yeah, I'm doing this for Yahweh." And you're sort of like, "Okay, cool." <laughs> and then as you keep going through his history, suddenly it's not actually for Yahweh, but he's convinced that it is. So how do you you know wrestle with that? And I think this, a passage like this helps us understand this is years and years and years of just progressively disobeying to where you're, you're at a really bad spot. So my, actually my favorite example of this is probably the book of Judges, where things at the beginning of the book aren't great. Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. You get to the end of the book, they're acting just like Sodom and Gomorrah, mm-hmm. right? So you see, again, a progression because of their hard-heartedness, because of their continued rejection. It's not a one-time thing, but it's a continual pattern of rejection. So then you come to the Pharisees, right? And I think we see that in the immediate context. Jesus has just given them an incredibly stark warning. Don't mess with the Holy Spirit. Like, you can say anything you want about me. You can say anything you want about the Father, but don't, you know, don't blaspheme him. Don't continually reject mm-hmm. the ministry of the Spirit. Because if you if you keep doing this, there's only one end result. And that is, uh, we talked a little bit about this in the Attribute series in our Sunday school, that God will give you over 
right? I mean, Paul in Romans one says that that's happened to, to people before. So, um, so yeah, so it's interesting to me that the Pharisees come and they're like, okay, well, give us a sign. And I just really, um, in my, my frustration with the Pharisees, just really wanted Jesus to say, dude, where you guys been? Right. I kind of want Jesus to say, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> I just, yeah. I've been doing all this stuff. Yeah. So, um, that's, that's why, uh, it's interesting to me that, that Jesus not only uses the word evil and adulterous, and then I think the concept of, of blindness, but he uses that word generation. And I think that needs to sort of ding off in our head. This is something we've actually seen over and over and over and over yeah. and over. Uh, throughout the history of God's people. What's fascinating is for this coming week, basically the next step happens. And the reason that Jesus starts speaking in parables, which he will in all of chapter 13, is because he's been rejected. Because their hearts are so hard, he's not going to throw his pearls before swine. Right. And so he starts speaking in a veiled way, which is a sign of their condemnation and judgment. It is his parables reveal to the disciples, but they conceal for the heart at heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And some, some commentators see a a decisive break at the end of your passage that doubt that the offer of the gospel to the, to the, um, to Israel, to the Hebrew people has ceased. And from here on it's Gentiles. I don't think it's nearly that clear, clear cut. Sure. That's sort of a classical sure, sure, sure. dispensation view. Yeah. Dispensationalism. But it does see, there's a clear marker. There's a clear difference in Jesus' ministry sort of from here forward. Yeah. I mean, and the parables does, are incredibly unique in that way. Yeah. And so it does yeah. seem like we've been in a month of, like real time seeing mm-hmm. this progress mm-hmm. of hardening and warning and hardening yeah. and warning. Mm-hmm. And now just the parables themselves. Yeah. I mean, you, we, there's a lot of things you could say about Jesus and his ministry. Notice I didn't say a lot of things you could critique. I don't <laughs> mean that. There's a lot of things you could say about Jesus and his ministry thus far in Matthew. Him not being explicit though is not one of them. Yeah. Like you can't accuse him of that. Yeah. Jesus, by the end of chapter 12, Jesus is crystal clear. Uh, as to what what he's coming to do, um, and what I mean, I think in Matthew five he's crystal clear, yeah. right? Um, uh, uh, talking about righteousness and then dealing with you know with the internal and external. So yeah, I mean, I mean, really, what it and 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 I probably should have mentioned this in the sermon, but really, what I think it shows is is God's patience with his enemies that he's made it this far, mm-hmm. you know. And we're actually going to see some Pharisees by the end of the Gospels and by the end of the Book of Acts convert. Yeah. So you know, it's not. It's not a complete and total thing, yeah. You know that all Pharisee is wicked, bad. <clears throat> um, but uh, uh, what we what we do see is that that God in the flesh, like I said, is there. Yeah. Like this is the real deal. This this is what everybody has been trying to build up. To. This is what Jonah has been trying to build up to. And they're 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 not rejecting the messengers anymore. They're rejecting the one who sent the messengers, mm-hmm. right? And that's mm-hmm. I mean, again, you can't get more clear than I think what what Jesus has done here. So let me let me jump on to uh, something that I think is very indicative of those who are against Jesus and their their lack of faith comes out in them demanding a sign. And so you were very explicit in calling us as hearers to not demand a sign, but to flee right. to Christ. So I, I would put most of the listeners to watering seeds in the for Jesus category, right? Not Absolutely, against Jesus. And yet, what can we learn from this? Are there are there ways that that we as Christians may be guilty of demanding a sign and, and as we, we all struggle with unbelief. And mm-hmm. if demanding a sign is a symptom of unbelief, then there's probably some behaviors that we have yeah. that are reflective of demanding a sign. Is there something we can learn from the Pharisees 
apply to our own lives. Yeah. So there's 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 two maybe types of signs that I think we demand, and the first is in that category of just expression of of severe doubt or unbelief, like you're talking about. <clears throat> and that's what I was trying to get at toward the end of my sermon when I <clears throat> brought up the the Lord, I'll serve you, but you have to answer my prayer in such and such a way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like I can't believe in Jesus because uh, God took away, you know, my family member that I love so much or whatever. Like I can't bring myself to worship a God who would do that or something like that. That's sort of a negative way to do kind of what the, the Pharisees are positively asking mm-hmm. for, right? Um, so so see, attempting to, on some level, bargain or negotiate with God is really what the Pharisees are trying yeah. to do. Yep. Um, the category that I didn't really get into, and, and I, this is probably my biggest regret, um, is is more uh, in the category of uh, uh, Christians whose consciences are incredibly sensitive. So here I'm thinking of the the myriad of people who, and we all go through this, but uh, particularly the people who you know have a big decision in front of them: Do I take this job here? Or do I take that job there? Right? Do we try and have another child? Do we? You know, uh, does my family do this? Do we save up for that? Do we make this big purchase? Do we buy that house? Do we, you know, whatever. And those questions assail us constantly. And what we really want is we want, you know, a star in the sky. We Mm. want a sign, right? We want God to just sort of, uh, 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 if I could say it in a joking way, golden plates, you know, (laughs) down from heaven, telling me exactly what to do. And he doesn't. And, And I think the way that, that, I understand that sort of impulse from this passage now is is that that's not so much unbelief as it is uh, we just don't want to mess up and disappoint God. That's generally where that that posture comes from, and I think what we can learn about that posture from this passage is uh, uh, in doing so we're actually it's not a line so much as it's a circle back to doubts. You know, I, if I make this decision, will God bless me? Mm-hmm. Well, God, God is going to bless his children with good gifts. That's what his scriptures have told us. But those good gifts come when and how and to the degree God wants them to. Mm-hmm. And so wanting a sign for that sort of decision is actually not heeding what he said elsewhere, which is... You have freedom in Christ to make these decisions as you want. I mean, God is inviting people to make those decisions, and he is glorified through one or the other, buying the house or not buying the house, right? Um, uh, uh, you know, investing or not investing, those sorts of things. I mean, there's there's a million other layers that go along with it, like you don't have any other money to feed your family. Okay, well, that's a pretty obvious. But everything else being equal, it actually is circling us back around to, well, I want to sign or else I can't do anything actually paralyzes us in a similar way as mm-hmm. the Pharisees are being paralyzed. Mm-hmm. So I think that we can learn the, the blessedness that Jesus brings in freedom, freeing us from this paradigm, right? Paul says in, in, in first Corinthians one, Jews demand a sign uh, and Greeks seek wisdom, uh, but no sign is given to them. Uh, and no, nothing wise comes, but he shames the wise with the seemingly foolish, mm-hmm. right? Um, <clears throat> and so that's what I think we we ought to take from this in those circumstances. Those are good questions to ask, but 
uh, we don't need to, to wait for signs. Uh, we need to go to the Lord in prayer. We need to seek after, uh, not his will, like as answer this question, but am I pursuing this for the right reasons? Uh, you know, is there selfishness in me here? That sort of stuff. Yeah. Those are the things that we sort of have to evaluate. Yeah, that's really good. One of the things that fascinate, fascinates me with the way that Jesus challenges these Pharisees is the sign, I mean, the, the sign of Jonah points to the resurrection, but they mm-hmm. don't have it yet. Right. But we have it. Right. Like we have the greatest sign imaginable. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That, that is all we need, right, for our faith. It's not, and Lord gives us more promises, assurances. He gives us the sacraments, the means of grace, all that. But we have more than they had. And he so he rebukes them for not believing, even though they had sufficient mm-hmm. sort of evidence in front of their and, eyes. And what we, you know, I, I love that you we have more than they have. I love that you said that because I feel like oftentimes we we don't feel that way. No, we actually feel like we have way less. Right. Because I mean, well, I mean, of course I would I would have a stronger faith in Jesus if I had lived during his time and watched him raise Lazarus from the dead. Well, the Pharisees are proof that's not true. Exactly. Right. Um, and in actuality, we have this incredible benefit. And that benefit is we have the Holy Scriptures complete, completed and revealed to us and the Holy Spirit that's been doing this work in our lives to understand it in a unique way now on the other side of Pentecost yeah. that he wasn't active in doing before. So, you know, you can't really say something like that. Um, uh, uh, living on the other side of the resurrection is unmistakably clearer that's right and if i can say it this way better but yeah. you know it is is a personal because it's not only the resurrection it's also the ascension and that's pentecost right. that's right, right? it's ascending <clears throat> the spirit yeah. we have the spirit that's right okay let's talk about the the flip side the the for jesus category yeah. and honestly you turned these final verses on their head uh 46 to 50 what i'd what i've always read as a rebuke uh, you know, Jesus rebuking his his mother. It's not the only time he does. You know, John 2, when she yeah. wants him to turn the water into wine. Yeah. Like, eh. um, so tell me how you sort of, how you came to your conclusion on this one. And, okay. And, and let me, I guess let me ask for a more pointed question. Um, why do you find this so comforting? Because even as you turn it on its head, I still read this passage as, whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother as is this is that not a little bit of legalism, right? Mm. She's just not throwing in some sort of works test into this. Um, so yeah, talk me through how you arrived at the, at your thought on this one. Yeah, so I'll I'll go backwards through your question there. the The first thing is I I saw a connection with um, uh, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven with the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is still talking about the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. He's he hasn't let that go. Um, and I, I think it, it at least goes back to earlier in the chapter with the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's definitely there in the tree known by its fruit. It's definitely there in the sign of Jonah passage, obviously in the unclean spirit passage, uh, which our listeners will note that you skipped over. And, oh, that's right. <laughs> uh, so maybe we can circle back to that in a second. But then uh, uh, here at the end, I think he's still talking about that. I think he's still saying the 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 unifying thing in the kingdom of God, which is that huge category in the in in, in Matthew. Here he's revealing a piece to that puzzle, and that piece is uh, what unites all of these different people. Their their common bond is doing the will of my Father, which Jesus has described as fruit uh, at the end of your passage the week before, mm-hmm. um, which is again con- connected to the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's actually the 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 seed right in the good soil. Is fruital, right? So it will come right. yeah, yeah, yeah. so, <laughs> Again, Jesus isn't 
isn't changing his message, right? right? He's he's just changing how he says it to whom he says it and so on. So, um, and then uh, wh- why do I find this so comforting? Well, I find it comforting because if um, if there's opposition in my family, which there was at the time, uh, at that point in my life, uh, uh, I can I can lean on different mothers and brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. So just in my own life, in my own experience, I saw and experienced uh, a different family. My pastor's family in, in high school, I probably ate dinner with them more than I did my own family. And to them, it just wasn't weird. It wasn't. And, and most of us would probably find that weird if some random teenager was just coming over to our house all the time. Um, and, uh, and you know, the, the, the mother of that family in particular had a huge, huge influence on me when she heard that I wanted to go into ministry. And, um, uh, the, their son ended up becoming one of my best friends, was my best man at my wedding, you know, that sort of thing. And I became far closer to them than I ever had been with anyone in my own family. Uh, and, and it took a matter of minutes, you know, by comparison to the years that I had spent in my own family. Mm. And so what the Holy Spirit had done is even though I had faced, you know, the opposition, not really to me, but to the gospel at work in my heart, the Holy Spirit's ministry in my heart, um, I found encouragement, love and community within the church. Even though when I went home, that was vehemently opposed Mm -hmm. for years um, and so, uh, so it's incredibly comforting to me that I think, you know, I mentioned this in, in, in Mark's version of this, uh, Mary and the brothers are coming saying he's out of his, he's lost his mind. Um, I think that they're opposing him, not to the degree the Pharisees are. I do think it's a genuine concern for Jesus. Um, but they're sort of unintentionally opposing mm-hmm. him, if, if I can say it that way. And that's why I make, make the comment, Jesus isn't disrespecting his mom. He's actually doing the most incredibly loving thing he could possibly do for his mom and his brothers, and that is continue the ministry the Father has mm-hmm. sent him for. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, so for, for someone like me, with the background that I have, yeah. I've found it incredibly encouraging. I've always found this passage incredibly encouraging because it means that I, I, I do have a family so let me press in some application yeah. here because I thought it was it was wonderful. You tied it into uh, the idea that some of us are coming off of a very rich and full Thanksgiving. Some of us are coming off of a lonely, unfulfilling Thanksgiving. Yeah. And so for somebody, the, the, the example you just gave in your own personal life, this is very comforting and encouraging, but but you don't have that anymore. Your family doesn't oppose this. Yeah. Like you, you're not coming. You have My a, in-laws a, are incredible. A life kit. Yeah, you have all these folks that love and support yeah, right. your ministry. So we we i feel like maybe we have members at our church that need to be that look at this passage from two very different perspectives mm-hmm. some that say this is comforting others that say maybe maybe this should be challenging me yeah like 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 i i, I come from a good christian supportive family so what yeah. is what does this verse say to those people yeah i mean so that that would be like um <clears throat> me asking uh, my buddy who became my best man right asking him hey what do you think of some rando guy in your youth group being at your church on Thanksgiving, encroaching on your family territory. I'd love to get their perspective on that. And, and their perspective was, yeah, of course you're welcome. Um, it it wasn't a second thought for them. You know, there were obviously still boundaries. Like I couldn't just show up at their house whenever Mm -hmm. I wanted and stay Mm -hmm. as long as I wanted, but it, it, 
you know, if I was there and they were eating, it wasn't a question like, hey, Jim, do you want to stay? It was, hey, pull a plate out. So you some know? of this sounds, I, I love this. I, I had a couple of families like this going, just yeah. my friends, parents were just welcoming to have me in the home. So mm-hmm. I think that's a great example. How can we extrapolate that to we don't have a, you know, precocious 14-year-old right, right. running around the church so, looking for some yeah. food. We've got somebody else that's in a very different stage that's, yeah. that's lonely, that doesn't have certain types of relationships. Yeah, so and the, I know you were getting getting at that. Yeah, but. so the, the, the big category that I think the rest of the New Testament is going to hammer on is uh, widows. Okay. Right? I, yeah. I think widows are a big deal in the book of Acts. They become a big deal in Paul's letters. Obviously, the passage in James. There's something unique about the church that suddenly starts caring for widows in a way that the Old Testament people of God didn't because they were evil, adulterous, and blind, right? So the church is not those things. They're for Jesus. And so uh, I would say, yeah, you may not have uh, uh, a a guy who's going through conversion in high school here at Covenant Reformed uh, without a family, but we we do have widows. We do have um, a single people, you know, whose families are either way far out of here or who uh, uh, don't meet up for these sorts of things. Um, I'm not trying to, you know, toot my own horn here, but our Thanksgiving was not a family Thanksgiving. You know, we had folks over who were not members of our own family. Um, I know uh, that there's a, a member of our church who has done that specifically with other members for a very long time here. And so these opportunities are all around us in, in those categories. But the, the other way, and this is also pretty obvious in, in my own life, there's a lot of orphans in Buncombe County who need homes, who need places to stay for a few nights, for longer than a few nights, right, for a few months. Uh, and that's a ministry that I think Christians need to be far more involved in than we really are. That's not a criticism just specifically of Covenant Reformed. It's it's a, I would like all Christians everywhere to really consider that. That yeah. doesn't always look the same, right? We, uh, for example, um, we do it one way, right? We opened our home in that way. Um, in, in our last church and in our current church, uh, people support us uh, uh, by, you know, giving us, uh, somebody gave us a scooter, right? Somebody's, you know, giving us things that we just don't have. Um, to make his life as normal as possible. Mm-hmm. So that's another way that mm-hmm. we we really ought to consider being being. Yeah. A so family what I sort of hear is there's in the category of those who are for Jesus, as as you put it, yeah. right? There's there's kind of a lot of us in different places, kind of all over the map. But sort of embedded in these verses is a, is almost a prod to be seeking out what, where and how. Yeah. Uh, especially you know we're we're a conservative church in a couple of different ways. You define that word, and part of that means. We, we we see a very we put a very high importance on the nuclear family. Like absolutely, we, we think moms and dads are very important. We yeah. think family worship, family discipline, family discipleship, and Jesus thinks all covenant that's baptism. Right? Exactly, yeah, yeah, these are all very important things that we want to emphasize. But we're not a bunch of nuclear families that just stand next to each other to sing songs on Sundays, right? There's right. there's something that should be prodding all of us, right? Whether it's open your home at Thanksgiving, whether it's widow care, whether it's orphan care, whether it's just that 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 outward look towards our mothers, brothers, sisters, mm-hmm. fathers within the body of Christ. Right. That I think you you called us to in a very compelling way by painting sort of the, the beauty of it for those who are in need of it. And I know that resonated mm-hmm. uh, with many members of our congregation. Yeah. And so. I, I think the, if I could just insert one last 
answer to your previous question. Uh, I would just encourage us, and I, I think we do a, a pretty great job of this here at Counter Reformed. Uh, obviously, there's always room for more improvement, but especially as we consider, you know, visitors and Lord willing growth that we've been going through here. But my best friends are members of the church, mm-hmm. right? Pursue those deep relationships with other people here. Um, rather than, like you said, being just being sort of pods that worship near right. each other and never really interacting. Um, like the people my wife hangs out with throughout the week are other church members. Mm-hmm. And that's not because, you know, the church hired her. They didn't. It's because her closest friends are the people she worships with in, in her community. We're right here. It's us. You know, so that's who she's pouring into. That's who's pouring into her. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would just encourage us to continue doing that work. Um, and, and to really emphasize, you know, those relationships, those friendships, particularly here, not that we should be, you know, tunnel visioned only people at covenant reformed, but, um, uh, those relationships are worth pouring into, sure. you know? So that, that brings me to like a final question and it's sort of about relationships and it's your, your closing application on the topic of listening. And I want to, I want you to give you a three sentence sort of, how did you get from the end of the sermon to there? And, and I guess I need to apologize that we're going to skip out on the theological <laughs> questions of this, but we, we're on, we're trying to be on a time clock. Yeah. And I really want to get... Maybe I'll write a salt shaker about it or something. <laughs> I thought it was a fascinating way you ended the sermon. Yeah. So how'd you get there? And then I have a follow-up question. Yeah. So the, the, the application of listen really came from... So when you're writing a sermon... This At least is when I'm writing a sermon. Three sentences, I can already yeah. tell. Sorry. When I'm writing a sermon, I always want things to be perfectly balanced. So if I have three points, those three points all need to be eight minutes and two seconds long. You know, uh, they can't be longer. They can't be shorter than each other and so on. Like I I like patterns and blah, blah, blah. If you look at our passage, it's dominated by the opposition party. Like the, the, the over two thirds of the passage is about people who oppose Jesus. And as I'm like, man, I really want this to be a three point sermon, right? Or whatever. (laughs) Like I want this to be balanced. I want this to be so on. Um, That's when... Uh, the Holy Spirit pre- pressed upon me just through that imbalance. Hey, that's that's saying something. The imbalance is saying something. And what is it? And then I realized, oh, it's saying nothing. And that's the point, is that they're not saying anything. And then I think, you know, I, I, I was going to mention this and, and I decided not to on the fly. I'm not sure why, but uh, uh, it's the same thing that we see in that famous passage with Martha and Mary, right? Martha's doing, Mary's listening, and Jesus is commending one of them. Mm-hmm. Right, um, and so that's the same lesson that 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 the silence says here, because he doesn't say, you know, uh, um, verse forty nine, and he stretched out his hands toward the Pharisees, <laughs> right? Obviously, but he says his disciples, and I don't think that's a reference to the twelve. I think that's a reference to just sort of a an indefinite group of. I think it's the twelve, but I think it's more than that. Mm-hmm. They're obviously somewhere where Jesus is formally teaching. Mm-hmm. It's, it's sort of a forum where he's being challenged and he's teaching back yeah. to the Pharisees. So so how did that, that come about? It really came about sort of selfishly trying to make my sermon as best as, as I could. And the Holy <laughs> Spirit sort of turned that yeah. into a, yeah, they're not saying anything. And that's important. Um, and and uh, the fact that they're not saying anything tells me they're, they're not like, yeah, you go, Jesus. You beat up those Pharisees. They're genuinely sitting there asking the question, well, wait a second, that's a good question from the Pharisees, right? Like they, they know the Bible. And then Jesus comes in and goes, no, they don't. 
right? Like they they can recite the words of Jonah. They can't tell you the meaning of Jonah. I can, right? So that that's sort of how that came about. I'm not sure if that fully answers. No, the that question. does. That does. Um, I think my follow up yeah. is just how do we know if we're listening? Yeah, that's like, a great question. I mean, you know, I'd give some example. I think of you know relationships I have. It's like I know mm-hmm. which friends are better listeners than others. Sure. Right. Yeah. I'm sure you do too. Yeah. Um, you're not talking about a relationship with other people. You're really talking about a relationship with the Lord. Right. Correct. And right. so, I don't, I don't know. How can we take a couple? Are, do you have any sort of diagnostic markers that I could look at my own life and say, "Yeah, am, am I am I listening in this yeah. season of life following the Lord?" Um, I might go back earlier to the passage in Matthew six on prayer, where Jesus says, "You know, don't pray like the Pharisees do, where they just get up." And, and you proclaim, right, right? right? And I said in the, in the sermon on, on that, that, you know, if, if uh, 99% of your sermon life isn't, or sorry, if 99% of your prayer life isn't private, something's wrong. Hmm. I might say that here, that if your relationship with the church, with the Lord, with um, the means of grace, with the ministry of the church, if, if your relationship with that is more geared toward questions like, what can I get out of it? More geared toward the, the nuts and bolts, more geared toward those sorts of things, you're probably not listening very well. And there's always that temptation to do, uh, not that I'm dogging on service. Martha wasn't wrong to serve Jesus. She was wrong to serve Jesus how she did and when she did. So something similar, I think, is going on here. What are some diagnostic questions we can ask about whether or not we're listening? Well, it really comes down to, you know, are we reading the scriptures? Are we participating in corporate worship? Are we uh, pursuing family worship in our own homes? I think those sorts of questions, that seems cheap, but we're in a passage where Jesus is, is sort of lifting up the ordinary. You know, if there's any passage I can sort of be like, ordinary means of grace. I feel like it's got to be the one where Jesus is like, hey, don't ask for a sign, a sign, a miracle. Um, And so that's the real question is take a real, like take a few minutes one day and and do a real self-evaluation of how much time am I spending on entertainment? How much time am I spending on the road? How much time am I spending on nuts and bolts? How much time am I spending in prayer? How much time am I spending? I'm not saying every moment of every day has to be filled up with, you know, a John Piper sermon, right, on a podcast or whatever. Mm-hmm. But we do need to have deep-seated routines in our lives that involve listening. Yeah. And if we're not doing that, if we don't, we, if we don't have a regular pattern of intent listening, um, I, I think we're probably not doing mm. what Jesus is mm. is commending his disciples for mm-hmm. here. Yeah. As you're saying that, that that's super helpful. Um, again, for the eighth time this podcast, I'm thinking of my sermon for this Sunday, and it's, do you have ears? Do your ears hear? Essentially, they have ears that don't hear, eyes that don't see, and the hearing is understanding, and the understanding is interpreted by bearing fruit, which is essentially doing something, obeying. I think you quoted James in your sermon. I did. Don't just be hearers of the word, but also doers. Yeah, that was my definition of listening, isn't <clears throat> just hearing. Yeah. So listening is hearing and doing. Yeah. yeah. One question I've heard somebody ask before, sort of a diagnostic question is, like, when's the last time you've changed something in your life as a result of the word, mm. or as a result of the sermon? Like, yeah. when's the last time you 
actually took the application from the sermon and did mm-hmm. it in your life. Yeah. Uh, which, and I might even go, uh, in addition to that, <clears throat> uh, I would love to talk about my sermons with, I love talking about sermons with you on watering <laughs> seeds, but I, I would love to talk about watering seeds and what we talk about here with other folks in our congregation. Some people do that. And I would just encourage other listeners, if you have other questions, like we'd love to talk to you about our sermons. We would love to talk to you about what we're studying. I'd uh, love to talk to you about the attributes of God, right? That we've been studying in Sunday school. Um, those are the sorts of things that, that we really enjoy. Uh, and, and it helps, uh, I think me as somebody who, you know, uh, sits under your preaching. I love talking to you about your sermons uh, be, and I have a unique opportunity to do that, but I love doing that because that actually encourages me to listen better next time. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and not in sort of like a, Sean's going to ask me, you know, oh, uh, Tuesday morning, pastor Sean says, Hey, what was my outline? You know, or whatever. But it just encourages me on Sunday morning. I'm like, you know, I had a really great conversation about that on watering seeds with you last week. I can't wait to do watering seeds on this one because I got a lot of questions yeah, about yeah. this. Right, whatever. <laughs> great. That great. encourages yeah. me to listen. So I think I think that would be true of most people as yeah. well. Good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I mean, I took a, a, a copious amount of notes because I knew I had to. You say you think you're in the hot seat hosting this thing in the hot seat, man. I got to lead. I got I got to listen to you and ask questions. Like it's it's hard. Thanks for making it easy for for me. Great sermon. Thank you, good, sir. Good listener. These last forty minutes. Uh, love being on the watering seeds with you. Look forward to. The seat swapped again next, next week. week. Uh, if you haven't heard, I'm, I'm going to be preaching on the parable of the sower. I don't know if that's clear <laughs> yet. Hope you can tune into that. And uh, the big one. For, <laughs> thanks for doing it. Look forward to uh, gathering again next week. Yeah, next week. All right, man. We'll see you. All right, peace. Peace.